I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 43 of The Hilo, the weekly news, current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And today is a ritzy author special. We're so excited about this one. You find her out later. Is that English? We reveal her later. Now, that sounds a bit game showy. She... She comes on she later. She comes on later. But it's very exciting to be very campy about this. It's been in the pipeline. For a while. It's so exciting getting authors on that we genuinely love, whose work we have anticipated mm. landing mm. in the UK. And it's something I really felt when we had Tina Brown on. So it's really great to have this lady on as well. Anyway, Dolly, what have you been up to? Um, more podcasts, another week, another podcast. Um, You're obsessed with podcasts. Because of the Fitness First Gym. It is a hell, a veritable hell. It's a nice um, outfit you're wearing. I'm about to go to the Fitness First straight after this. It's horrible, this outfit. I'm quite embarrassed. I forgot that I'm going to have to see this really brilliant author wearing this horrible outfit. Um, yeah, it's because the Fitness First Gym is so rank. I need a podcast to sort of take me out. What are your hits for of this the week? Um, so Angela Hartnett was on Desert Island Discs, who is a very successful and very well-respected Italian chef. And she worked with Gordon Ramsay for, I think, 17 years. And she's just great. She sounds like just my kind of woman. She sounds really fun. She's really down to earth. She talks a lot about how she loves dancing. She's incredibly honest about her struggles with conceiving and her failed attempt at IVF. And she really sort of lays her heart bare with that, which, you know, must be a very exposing thing to Mm. talk about. I really um, appreciated her speaking about it. And she's just got a great sense of humour. And she also talks a lot about the fact that she comes from this family of Italian immigrants and about how when Italians first came over here, interestingly, instead of starting trattorias or Italian restaurants here, they all went into steaks or fish and chips and her family owned a fish and chip restaurant. It's just, if you're interested in Italian food, it's fascinating, the kind of progression of it. So listen to that. And then also on a food theme, always, Daisy Buchanan was a guest on a podcast I love called Desert Island Dishes. Ah, with Margie Broadhead. Have you done That's that podcast? I have, and I love doing it. It's really a Venn diagram of all my favourite things together, where it's uh, it's just talking such a... Talking in food. Yeah, talking in food. <laughs> and she uses the format of Desert Island Discs, but instead of uh, records, you choose plates of food, and then that kind of acts as a key to opening all these... Doors of memories. Yeah, ocean of secrets, I would say, maybe. It's a touch too dramatic, but it's still very entertaining. I actually said emotional secrets. (laughs) I thought you said ocean of secrets. I don't think you've got an ocean. I think you've got maybe like a dribbly river. I have no secrets, and it really bums me out that I have no secrets. Oh, I'm sure you've got some. I really don't. Do you have any? I have to have a think. I'm pretty open. I'm pretty honest about my... 
I don't think transgressions. You have any. I don't think you have any. But then maybe that's arrogant because I don't like the idea of you keeping anything from me. <laughs> well, you know I hate it when you keep stuff from me. If Dolly goes away for the weekend and hasn't told me, I'm like, why did you not tell me you were going away? She's like, oh, oh, sorry, I must have forgotten. I'm, I just feel like you didn't tell me you were going away and now I've had to find out through Instagram. Do you know, it's so funny. All the women close to me have that. Farley <laughs> is like full of rage. Um, us, me and my sisters have that. as well. It's just when you're very close to someone and yeah. you spend a lot of time as we do through work. Yeah. My sisters would definitely be like, I didn't know you were going away. Farley hates when I purchase new items of clothing and I don't forewarn her. So she'll see me and she'll be like, well, is that new? When did you get that jumper? Anyway, back to Desert Island Dishes and the Ocean of Secrets. Daisy's brilliant. She's talking about food and family and her husband and um, the home and how kind of appetite plays a role in her life. I just loved it. I also got the results from my DNA ancestry test. Oh, good Lord, Dolly. Why are you doing a DNA ancestry test? They sent it to me. And you'll You mean be... one of those, like, that they do on, like, home and away to find out who the father is? It's not like that, no. It's but more it's like... like a mail-order thing. It's a mail-order thing. And you found out you're related to Baudicere <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth. It's not like Jeremy Kyle. It's you literally fill up a test tube of spittle, which is incredibly difficult, can I just say? <laughs> I have an image of you just pathetically spitting into this sort of yeah, pipette for two exactly hours. That's exactly what it was. An hour, Yeah. Anyway, it was worth it because it turns out I'm only 7% English. Are you? What else are you? So I was 38% Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Mum said, interestingly, the points of Scotland that they highlighted were connected to the part of Canada that we are from. Any surprises? Um, 10% Spanish. So all European? Uh, yeah, then Western European, because my grandparents are Italian, my, on my mother's side, they're Italian. The thing that's really interesting, but also I had a moment where I was like, God, this is actually quite a massive, mo- this could be quite a big reveal in a person's life, is that once you do the DNA testing, it's a really good company that have done it. I'm not just saying that because they sent it to me for free. It is just really quick and accurate. Once you do the testing, they obviously have this database of thousands thousands of people in the world that have done it they give you a list of mine was about 80 people that were everything from my first to eighth cousins that are dna matches and i suddenly had a moment where i got, they give you their names yeah these profiles have you ticked some well i got in touch with one woman called cheryl who's so in canada a huge amount of privacy in this database <laughs> no i think you you accept when you do it that that's what happens but there's and you can opt out of doing that but obviously i'm fascinated with that stuff but there was a woman in canada called cheryl who got in touch with me who turns out she's my second cousin we're now having a jolly old email oh my God, session this is hilarious i feel like this is a whole new part of your life well do you know what it is because i booked tickets to go see aretha franklin when i was incredibly drunk on new year's eve in toronto i think i might make it a bit of a ancestral quest well i'm (laughs) you think i'm joking and swest and and (laughs) swest honestly if anyone would like me to write about it and pay for my plane tickets i'm gonna forgive you this slightly extraordinary foray into your ancestry because you've had a wild ride of a week. Dolly won't mention it, so I will. Anyone who doesn't read the Sunday Times, more fool you. Dolly had an eight-page feature in the Sunday Times style all about her book, Everything I Know About Love, which is out on February the 8th. First. First. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be out on the 8th. 
no. Look, you threw me by Nothing. having your sodding book launch on the 5th. Can't you just keep everything to the same day? The baby ate my brain. Anyway, it was very good. And lots of people from Dolly's past got in touch with her. So well done on that. And your audiobook <laughs> is you. also out too. Um, yes, there was nothing to bring you crashing down to earth like the uh, Sunday Times comments, though. <laughs> give me the give, give me you... the best hashtag. Stay humble. Okay. Saint John says very boring. Derek Lamport says sounds rather like an extended edition of Women's Hour. I really don't need that extra X chromosome. Magister <laughs> replied to him saying. That's why men don't take much notice of what women say, because their conversations is usually about irrelevancies. So that was nice. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Do you know what, though? It's always actually quite gentle on the Times. Thank God it's not The Guardian. They would have eaten me alive. So when's your audiobook out? The audiobook, thank you for asking that, Pandora, the non-planted question. The audiobook is out this week. They're uh, releasing it two weeks ahead of schedule. And I know we struggled with Audible, but here's how you do it. You download the Audible app, you buy it on Amazon, and then it appears in your Audible app. Give us an actual date, because remember, podcasts are evergreen, Dolly. It's already out now. So what day is it today? 18th of January. 18th of January, so it was out on the 15th of January. Excellent. And it's me reading it, sadly, but (laughs) Joanna Lumley wasn't available. I'm a good second best. (laughs) What have you been up to, Pandora? So I have been rediscovering, having discovered them when I was moving house, the magic of fantastic services. This is a hashtag, not spawn, shout out. If you are doing anything from moving house to hanging new lights to needing your garden cleared out or a deep clean because you can't see through five piles of dust and you know your cleaning's not going to do the job. I am really obsessed with this service called Fantastic Services and they've been slightly saving my life while I have a unexpected full rewire of my house and various other things while I am decorating. So that is a great service. No, that is a handy hint. Yeah. That is a handy hint because often in life you find yourself with these jobs that you don't know specifically the labourer name that you'd need for the job, <laughs> but you know you need someone to do it. I know. I'm still learning of the... the ne- Who do I call when there's water dripping through my light fixture? Oh, that's a plumber. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, literally, that's literally my process. This week I've been reading The Melting Season by Jamie Attenberg and a lovely book of poems that I was sent by a listener called Swimming Underwater, which is written in the hay first few months of new motherhood by mm. Joanna Bennett published by Tatterhood she's actually writing a poetry book for the children of Great Ormond Street at, at this current time which is rather lovely it's nice that you keep, that you keep kind of finding this poetry that relates to your experience I think there's so little of it around mm. that mm. any of it there is people are sort of harnessing and curating for me thank you very much and sending <laughs> to me or recommending to me I do have a bee in my bonnet from tell me reading. about the bee can we talk about the concept of self-care because oh, I yeah. keep reading about it and I heard it on Woman's Hour recently and Jane there was a guest on Woman's Hour I can't remember if it wasn't Jane Garvey sounded completely thrown by it and I was thrilled to read Ben Michelle's hilarious piece in the Sunday Times Culture last week where he sort of lampooned it it's such bullshit Mm, mm. and it's become quite a thing it's become shorthand self-care and it's almost like millennials have just sort of reinvented looking after yourself and giving it this rather grandiose title i think self-care sounds like something quite else well, I think it is, could be that, that as well. That could be part of self-care. But <laughs> well, also, some may say that is an essential part of self-care. But we have not reinvented self-care. We just like, as millennials, to think we invent 
bloody everything. Mm. It's just another zeitgeisty cultural buzz trend that literally means have a bath, light a candle, get a manicure, do some meditation, wipe your ass with the cushiony tissue, not the scratchy <laughs> tissue. That is what self-care is. Pandora. It's <laughs> true. Cushiony tissue. Um... Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, there's something that's much more important than the, <laughs> the cushiony tissue, um, which is taking responsibility for yourself. That That is really important. And actually, you've been really instrumental in helping me realise how important that is. I got to a point on Monday morning where I felt super frazzled for loads of reasons an image of you feral digging through the bins oh my god it was kind of edging towards that I was just like hadn't really slept in about a week and I was kind of yeah just feeling really tired and overworked and you have taught me the value of the airplane mode on my phone and actually instead of saying self-care which sounds sort of so indulgent I got to a point when I was feeling so tired where I was like, this is no one's responsibility but mine. I'm not a kid. I don't need a parent to tell me to go look after myself. I can't take this out on other people. I can't snap at other people. I can't let my work flounder. I need to take a complete day off, put my phone on airplane mode, alert everyone I'm working with and my close friends and say, just going to be like completely off grid for the next 24 hours. And I did and I felt completely refreshed. That's something that should be praised rather than... A bath bomb. I suppose it's difficult because to get kind of concepts or movements moving, you need to name them, for want of a better word. Mm -mm. But I just feel like I am immediately lost from something quite a valuable conversation by what it's called. Like, Mm. I loathe the term. And I I loathe that we're elevating it to something other than something quite basic and rudimentary, which doesn't mean it's not important. Mm. It is important. But we also, I don't think, need to talk about it reverentially. (laughs) I don't think we need to go on to Woman's Hour and say that for 2018, we're really going to investigate the concept of self-care. Yeah. I think just use the cushiony tissue. Helen Neonius said something really funny, actually, because, you know, it's the 100 years since women got the vote this year Mm -hmm. and you just keep seeing brands really sort of hopping on. This is the problem with a zeitgeisty cultural buzz trend, as I like to call them to shorthand, is that there's a press release Mm. for everything. Mm. Well, uh, Helen sent me this very funny thing off the back of quite a nauseating ad campaign that was linking itself to um, to the suffragettes and it was all to do with the sort of self-care thing and Helen just said very dryly, Emily Davidson threw herself under a horse so brands could get women sitting in a room talking about how we're all too hard on ourselves. <laughs> I know. I mean, not to sort of dent modern feminism, but sometimes you're right. We do slightly lose the point of what we're fighting for. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to email search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Each week we are going to do a curiosity challenge where we pose a question to one another which encompasses the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. In light of the Golden Globes and Time's Up, Carrie Gracie making a stand over parity and Catherine Deneuve's controversial renouncing of Me Too, my question to you, Dolly, is do the actions, words, examples and behaviour of celebrities, for better or for worse, have an effect on the rest of society? Are they a mirror for potent change? Do we just like to think they are? I do think that celebrities, people in the public eye 
have the power for enormous change. I listened to an interview recently with Catelyn Moran, who was talking about this very thing, and she said that in Doctor Who, there was one of the heroes, forgive me, I don't watch Doctor Who, so I don't know the names of them, one of the most admired and liked characters was bisexual. And the next day in the playground, all the kids wanted to play this character who was a bisexual man. And these people, be it real-life celebrities or celebrities playing characters, they become our vases and vessels for all our hopes. So, yeah, I do think it can have an enormous amount of influence on us. And there's this amazing story that I always think of about that phrase that we talk about, you can't be what you can't see. There was this soap opera in Peru, I think in the 70s and one of the characters was a working class woman and it was a storyline that was really popular in this soap that was a long running storyline where she bought a sewing machine and she pulled herself up from the bottom and she had this incredible career and the sales of singer sewing machines and women enrolling in sewing classes went up it was something like 400% in Peru so you know there's proof there that these things can be enormous, as you said, beacons for change. Well, slightly off topic then, but <laughs> the Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone, capturing your best ever photos, whether you're in bright light or dark evenings, so starry nights look as good as sunny days. Thank you very much to the Google Pixel 2. It's now time for the top line, read by Pandora Sykes. Shop has sold out of their controversial fake news jeans. A semi-stretched denim with fake news trammeling down the side in red, the trousers were accused of bandwagoning by the New York Times. Mm. Emmanuel Macron has agreed to lend us the Bayeux Tapestry, the 230-foot tapestry which depicts Anglo-Saxon warriors defending themselves against the Normans at the 1066 Battle of Hastings, has not left France in 950 years. It has not yet been decided where the tapestry will be displayed. Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed's memorial statue is to be removed from Harrods. The bronze statue was installed by Dodi's father, previous Harrods owner Mohammed, in 2005. Some shoppers are said to be very angry about the decision made by Harrods' current Qatari owners. Catherine Deneuve has apologised for her comments made about Me Too last week. French newspaper Le Monde ran her mea culpa. Yes, I signed the petition, she said. However, it seems absolutely necessary today to underline my disagreement with the way certain signatories have individually assumed the right to expand upon it in the media, distorting the spirit of the text, she wrote rather wordily. She referred to former radio presenter Brigitte Lahai, who recently said that women were able to orgasm during rape. Without mentioning Lahai by name, Deneuve said this was worse than spitting in the face of those who have suffered the crime. More than 24,000 attempts to access porn from the Houses of Parliament have been made since the general election, which is around 700 times a day. I'm just going to leave that fact there. Fuck me. Two men have been charged with the murder of Harry Azuko, a successful British model who was stabbed in Shepherd's Bush last week. Leading fashion photographers Mario Testino and Bruce Weber have been accused of sexual assault in the latest New York Times investigation. Condé Nast has severed links with the two photographers, as Anna Wintour says, for the time being, after numerous accusations of sexual exploitation of male models and assistants were made public. 
Thirteen children have been rescued from what has been dubbed the Californian House of Horror, where parents kept children underfed and often chained up. The children, aged 2 to 29, are said to be emaciated and incredibly pale, having rarely been outside, and are all recovering in hospital. Parents David and Louisa Turpin have thus far offered no explanation as to why they were torturing their children. Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos, a.k.a. the richest man in the world after recently overtaking Bill Gates, has donated $33 million to a scholarship fund, thedream.us, for immigrants brought over to the States illegally as children. Bezos says the story of his own adopted father's arrival in the US from Cuba inspired him to help the young dreamers. Surgeon Simon Brammel has been fined £10,000 for branding two of his patients' livers with his initials whilst working at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. The surgeon was charged with assault by beating and the judge reprimanded him for his arrogance and cruelty after one patient was left severely traumatised. The mother of the five-year-old Swedish child model at the centre of the H&M monkey hoodie Ferrari has revealed that the family have been forced to move house after receiving death threats. And that was the top line. We actually got a lot of emails from French women in response to our conversation last week about uh, Catherine Deneuve saying this notion that France is misogynistic is very outdated. One subject line read, French women are woke as fuck and super angry. And all of them touched on a similar thing, which is that things have really changed and they don't feel represented in that stereotype anymore. I don't believe that all French women are woke as fuck, but I do accept that there's probably a large proportion of women our age who are quite bored of reading French people in the public eye making statements that, that don't represent yes, them. exactly. Yeah. Have you seen that Margaret Atwood's in trouble over her comments on Me Too? It seems to be something that second wave feminists, not that Deneuve is a second wave feminist, mm. but that second wave feminists are struggling with slightly, although she never called herself a feminist, Margaret Atwood, No, I don't she? think she did. I think it's, yeah, I think it's women of a certain age and I think it's because their mission as earlier wave feminists was so, so different to our mission now. If you think what they were fighting for, it was so much more black and white, good and bad in mm. a way. And they would argue so much more fundamental. Which well, it is, was fundamental because without yeah. the fundamental foundations, we can't build. Exactly. Build but I think that's why they struggle also with intersectionality sometimes as well, which is so unthinkable to our generation of feminist ideology because their blinkers were so on. It was such a single, mm. singular mission. And I think the thing is with Me Too, as the Aziz Ansari story shows this week, is that we're now at a time when we're ready, both with our uh, language and our stories and our evidence and our confidence and our support collectively to delve into those slightly less clear-cut places of inequality and discuss why it's still basically more difficult to be a woman in everyday life be it in dating or in the workplace or in the domestic home and address them and even with my mum I notice she's a feminist she was a placard carrying like marching feminist and sometimes she she doesn't quite understand how much I gender politicise stuff so often I'll talk about an issue and I'll say oh because that's such a male thing or that's a relic of the patriarchy and she doesn't quite agree with me or doesn't quite pick up on it yeah it's very interesting 
Ari, this H&M hoodie debacle, coolest monkey in the jungle. So for those of you who missed it, there was a five-year-old black child model on the H&M website wearing a green jumper that said coolest monkey in the jungle. It was called racist and there's been a big fallout. H&M stores have been smashed. And as I said in the top line, the family have had to move house in Sweden. The mother told people to stop crying wolf over the jumper. What do you think of this? I feel quite conflicted. I understand that a monkey is historically a gross racist slur against people of colour, but surely the slur becomes defanged when used in common parlance. Then again, I thought twice when I read on Twitter a really good point that the black kid gets to wear the H&M sweater with coolest monkey in the jungle while the white kid wears an orange one that says survival expert. And I think this really emphasises how careful you have Mm. to be as a retailer. Mm. You know, it's a flippant decision, but it had a seismic fallout. H&M have been trashed. And I also read another tweet, which was great for me to read to remind me saying if you don't see any problem with this jumper you are probably operating from a position of privilege and oh, I thought, totally. fair enough that I yeah, am exactly yeah I mean I just think it's so awful that that woman's had to move her family out of their out of their home I think this is obviously offensive deeply offensive but it's as a result of complete and utter stupidity and thoughtlessness rather than a sort of calculated malice, I think. And therefore... They could have just switched the hoodies on the kids. Yeah, yeah. And therefore the reaction should be negative and H&M should be held accountable to it. But I I don't think it should be disproportionate. Smashing stores and having to move house. Yeah. Last thing I want to say is, why did it take a New York Times investigative piece again, for a publishing giant like Condé Nast to start working with Bruce Weber and Mario Testino. I'd heard rumours about Mario Testino for ages. Aren't Condé Nast big enough and ugly enough to make that call themselves instead I mean, of following suit? you know, there are so many people, if you look at the Golden Globes, there are so many people who feigned ignorance about Harvey Weinstein, who I'm just not sure if I believe them, having worked in the film industry at the top for so long. I know for a fact, as I'm sure you do as well, Everyone knew about Mario Testino. Everyone knew about it. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because we sit here and we say this and I was asked to appear on a well-known radio show to talk about knowing about Mario Testino and I said no because I literally just have hearsay and I don't want to be litigious. Now, Condé Nast are not in that position but I did get an insight through myself into what it's like to know something but not to know anything tangible to be able to say something. I just don't believe that people at the top of those magazines who are employing him didn't know. I, know I, I don't believe it. It's quite it. funny, isn't it, that it takes the New York Times. I mean, I wonder what they're working on now. It's, mm. it's, there is now, I imagine, with Jodie Cantor and the other people who are working on these kind of pieces, just this ongoing investigative bureau. Mario's been in the post for a while, apparently. Been a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'd had that for a long time. Support for the Hilo comes from Treatwell, our gorgeous, useful and rather luxurious new pal of a sponsor and the brighter way to book beauty. Treatwell is by far the easiest service to use. Browse reviews before booking, find off-peak and last-minute prices, choose from over 25,000 salons across the UK and Ireland, book easily online or on the app 24-7. It's slightly the only thing getting me through dreary January, to be honest. 
God, it's depressing this weather, isn't it? We're both doing dry January, one of us more by choice than the <laughs> other. So pampering is pretty important right now. So why not get a jump start on Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day, Dolly's favourite day for that matter, and book yourself a spa day. Book now to avoid disappointment as everyone eschews romance for a nice pedicure. I recently extolled the virtues of the most relaxing and best facial of my life, thanks to Treatwell right before Christmas at The Face Place, which I booked using the app. I'm definitely going to prepare myself a Galentine's glam sesh as soon as we (laughs) stop recording. As well you should. Many thanks to Treatwell. We've got no topics this week as we have our very exciting author coming into our studio soon, but we do want to discuss some ideas and pieces that have been percolating. There's been a lot of discussion about a piece on babe.net by a 23-year-old woman known as Grace who has accused American comedian Aziz Ansari of inappropriate behaviour after the two went on a date and had sex. The piece has garnered over 2 million shares and caused a lot of people to ask what the hell babe.net is. Answer, it's set up by the tab. Cambridge University started publication in 2009 and now owned by Rupert Murdoch or part owned by Rupert Murdoch and no one who works there is over 25. It's also spawned some really interesting discussion on whether or not we've got to a Point where not all stories are valuable to the Me Too conversation. That's quite a bold thing to say. I understand that. The idea of silencing women is a dangerous one. But both Dolly and I felt a little conflicted when reading the story on Babe.net. And we found ourselves, if not agreeing, then definitely... Sympathising. Sympathising with a listener who wrote to us saying, am I a bad feminist for, in short, finding the story annoying? And I think the key here is that whilst no women should be silenced, are all stories worthy of joining a movement or do some stories devalue said movement? Or should they be discussed with as much time and attention but removed from the movement. The story on Babe.net essentially says that while Grace initially pursued Aziz for a date, he then missed verbal and non-verbal cues when they were having sex to denote that she was unhappy. Barry Weiss wrote a really interesting op-ed for the New York Times titled Aziz Ansari is Guilty of Not Being a Mind Reader and called it the worst thing to happen to the Me Too movement since October. Well, I sort of agree with the listener. I think it was exceptionally bad reporting, first and foremost, and so much nuance got lost in discussing the story. There was a really good piece in The Guardian by Jill Filopovich arguing that poor journalism ruined a moment when we could discuss something sort of far more complicated and arguably more prolific than simply rape, which is the way misogyny is still so present in heterosexual sexual behaviours. The fact that female pleasure is nearly always subordinate to men, the fact that the female anatomy and orgasm is still largely misunderstood or ignored, reinforced by 90% of pornography, watched by probably 90% of young people at one point or another. And it's about the gender roles that are so deep-rooted and start from birth and the fact that most of the time, particularly in young sexual encounters, not only are men completely misinformed on how to behave, women often don't correct them or they play along because we're taught from such a young age not to anger men and to preserve their ego. This is exactly why everyone loved and shared Cat Person so much. This is entirely what Cat Person was about. And with the babe.net piece, I think there's a missed opportunity to discuss all of the above and basically what a complete mess this is for everyone and that it has to change. I'm just going to quote from that Guardian piece because it's so brilliant. 
Girls are raised with a contradictory set of expectations. Be kind and acquiescent, but also be the brakes on male sexual desire. We are taught to reflexively say yes, except for when we're supposed to definitively say no, but we don't learn how to know when we want to say either. The language of a bad hookup fails to capture their unequal power dynamics and the deep sense of disorientation and betrayal that comes when someone treats you as a whole rather than a person nor does it adequately measure the weight of centuries of misogyny that have shaped our most intimate moments. The Atlantic would agree with Jill. They wrote a good piece called The Humiliation of Aziz Ansari, where they argued that whilst this story may read like the disappointing hookup and cat person, it's actually a vital contribution to the conversation because many women are left disappointed by the behaviour of men whilst dating. I'm personally conflicted. I do think it's an important conversation to be having. I don't think it should necessarily be part of the Me Too movement. I don't think we spent enough time dissecting the atrocities that that brought up to be talking about how a bad hookup can actually be more representative of a misogynistic culture than we think. I think that's a valuable conversation to be having. I don't like the two being conflated. I didn't really rate the babe.net piece, to be honest. I think possibly more than Jill, I was in the reader's camp where I just thought... I don't really feel like this is exactly what we should be focusing on right now. And I do think it's going to trigger a backlash, which doesn't help me too at all. On the subject of digital storytelling and redemption, there was a great piece in The Times which said that Twitter is destroying the idea of redemption. It drew on the examples of Lena Dunham, who has essentially been persona non grata for two months. Johan Hari, the former independent columnist who was fired in 2011 for falsifying quotes from Wikipedia pages and who is back with a brilliant book that's been garnering rave reviews about depression and slightly left field here of Toby Young, who we discussed last week. Jenny Russell writes, Everything that is normally demanded of a wrongdoer has been done by Hari. He has apologised, atoned, changed, and yet there is a substantial constituency out there for whom nothing, it seems, will do apart from annihilation or disappearance. For them, no one is worthy of second chances or capable of reformation. Hari is just one example of the merciless public culture we are building fuelled by the ease of creating Twitter storms or online outrage in which people who offend others, make misjudgments or behave badly find themselves condemned regardless of context or character. It's a brilliant read, though some people have understandably drawn a difference between Lena and Johan. Lena was the one essentially behind her Twitter account that Mm. then turned on her, for want of a better word, whereas Johan just made some grave professional errors, Mm. which he has apologised for, but actually, which I thought was quite impressive, said that he doesn't want to explain because explaining means empathy and he doesn't want people to empathise with him because what he did was very wrong. Mm. Rather, he has come out, said what he did is wrong and worked very hard on his career since then and six years later here he is with this book and what Jenny is saying and using these very different examples is that essentially cut him a fucking break mm. why is well, no what one what more can he do no, why is no one allowed to make a mistake in the Twitter age and also he's so young what she's saying is that you know is that it is that the end does he just go and sit in a dark room forever now you know it feels medieval this paragraph really struck a chord with me Jenny, the writer, said, I found it impossible to make this argument online. Twitter allows for no nuance in judgment. A partial defence of anybody's character is immediately assumed to be wholesale support. In the online world, people are either black or white, not human and flawed. Yeah, it's binary. 
Mm. Lastly, there have been some great pieces on protest dressing in light of the Golden Globe's Time's Up initiative, which we discussed last week. Former Vogue editor Alexandra Schulman, Guardian columnist Eva Wiseman and the Sunday Times columnist Camilla Long have all written interesting columns about it. Alexandra warns quite validly that we need to prevent message overload, compassion fatigue and accusations of easy one-click activism, which summarises the pitfalls of protest dressing perfectly, I think. Mm. Corinne Fisher was very articulate and very impassioned talking about this on the last episode of Guys We Fucked. She... She said she thinks that the conglomeration of feminism with fashion can be confusing. And something else she said that is interesting is that it's so easy to do that as a moment of protest that the good guys and the bad guys end up getting mixed together. And actually, she said she thinks the more powerful thing would have been people deciding to not go, which I think is what Michelle Williams did. I don't know if I agree with Corinne. Definitely fashion and feminism can be conflicted in a quite grotesque way, such as the Dior T-shirt that said, we should all be feminists, which sold for $700. I don't think they should have not gone to the Golden Globes. These women are actors. This is one of the most important events of their entire working year. They are there to celebrate the triumphs of one another and the triumphs of their industry. And I don't see why they should have to eschew that. But I can see messages from both quarters about how effective the black gowning was. Mm. To quote Eva, the black dresses were not the subject of the night. They were a backdrop to a hundred small promises of change. At first I thought protesting through fashion was weak, but I quickly realised the truth of those black gowns and how pulling at a single thread can cause the whole facade to fall away. Which is a beautiful turn of phrase. And then in turn, opposingly, the very acerbic and cynical Camilla writing for the Sunday Times about Time's Up. I felt sorry for McGowan watching her cause and her people the losers, being cannibalised by a bunch of painted vampires. The seriousness of this attempt at activism can be summed up by the words of Emma Stone's makeup artist, who claimed she had imbued her client's purple eyeshadow with the message of female empowerment and solidarity by using colours inspired by the suffragettes. And when you put it like that, (laughs) you can see. Anyway, a really interesting spate of pieces. We will link all these, but not the eyeshadow, in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We're so thrilled to introduce our guest author this week, Leila Slimani. For those of you who have been living underneath a rock, Leila is the author of Lullaby and two other books, which we will get to, about a nanny who murders her two young charges. The book sold over 600,000 copies in France and won Leila the Prix Goncourt last year, the highest literary prize in France. It's now been translated into English in its French form. It is called Chanson Douce and it comes out today, published by Faber and Faber. Leila has been profiled by every single reputable publication under the sun and we are thrilled to have you here today, Leila. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did you have 
any idea when writing Lullaby what a huge success it was going to be? No, not at all. I was like, you know, I'm going to write this little book about a nanny and a mother and no one is going to care about the relationship between two women because we don't have a lot of books about the, this kind of relationship, domestic relationship. Mm. And I was like, maybe one day I'm going to write my big book about war or history <laughs> or a big love story. But I was like, it's just going to be a little book in my career. It, it happened very differently. And can you tell us a bit about how the book came about, in particular the real-life story that you drew on when you were writing the story? Um, at the beginning, I just wanted to write a story about a nanny because I found that the nanny is a very fascinating character. It has a very ambiguous position in a family because mm. she lives in a home, but the home is not her home. Mm -hmm. She raises children, but the children are not her children. She doesn't really belong, even if everyone is telling her, you're a member of the family you know you're one of ours and you put a photograph of her on uh, in the living room and everyone is acting as if so it, I, I thought it was very interesting for me to build a fictional character around a nanny and when I discovered the, the story of uh, New York and uh, the story of this nanny who stabbed two children I had the idea of beginning my book by a murder mm. but actually I didn't investigate the real story I, I didn't want to write about this story it was just um, uh, a story that gave me the idea of a, of a book, but it's completely fiction. It was obviously a very compelling book. It was also a very disturbing book. As I just revealed to Layla before we started recording, I actually had to sleep with the book in the other room. Because <laughs> every time I looked at it, I kind of started thinking about it again. And I agree with Lauren Collins, who wrote in a brilliant New Yorker profile of you that she wishes she could unread certain sentences. Not only for its dramatically structured plot, as you say, it works backwards. We open with a very kind of vivid and visceral picture of the crime scene. And the first sentence that you read is the baby is dead but also the way that it describes the bad fortune that people get in life and how it affects their psyche throughout you kind of unpeel the history and the inner life of Louise the nanny and insidiously you uncover something very dark was it a difficult thing to write was it uncomfortable spending time in this world with these characters and in their minds Oh, you know, it's always very difficult after one year or two years after the book to remember exactly what I was feeling re uh, writing it. But um, actually, I think it was pretty enjoyable to write such a story because I really wanted to confront my own fears, my own nightmares. And it was, in a way, it was a sort of catharsis for me because I was killing those children. I was trying to understand this darkness and in the same way my own life seemed so joyful and so wonderful compared to what I was writing. So it was very enjoyable and I wanted in a certain way to... I was very inspired by Polanski or by Hitchcock. I wanted to write a novel with an atmosphere, an atmosphere of claustration, an atmosphere of trouble, of confusion. And as a reader, I, I like to be... Uh, uh, disturbed when I read a book. I don't think that the aim of literature is to heal us, to reassure us. Mm. In the contrary, I think it's uh, to disturb us, to make us look at reality in a m much more complex way, to avoid caricature and cliché, to, to confront our own fears. So 
in a certain way, it was enjoyable to write this uh, this book. It's interesting because I remember reading that Zadie Smith said that when she wrote On Beauty, which is about the very sad end of a marriage, she herself had just got married. And she was, as you said, kind of exploring those anxieties. When I began the book, I, had, um, I was hiring a nanny and I had a son who was um, two years old mm. and I got pregnant when the book was launched. So, you know, it, I, my own life was resonating a lot with uh, the book but I think it's very important to make the difference between fiction and your own mm, life when people are telling me oh you know I'm not sure I can read it because uh, I'm a mother myself but I think in the contrary if you are a mother you can uh, much more identify to Miriam mm. and to the story with the nanny because it explores motherhood and what we feel and what we think when we are a mother. The book as is the case with all thrillers for want of a better word now has been compared to Gone Girl and Girl on a Train but for me those comparisons are very crude and they miss as you've touched on there the really important cultural talking point at the center of the book as well as the beautiful writing um, society's complicated relationship with that of the well the working mother but also just the mother as a whole and you offer up this unsolvable conflict where leaving your children with a nanny is terrifying I mean the children are murdered but that for many mothers staying home is not an option mentally um, and you write of Miriam sometimes she wanted to scream like a lunatic in the street they are eating me alive she would think as society in order to progress women must be allowed to return to the workplace without guilt and yet we have a working mother who does just that and loses her children. As a working mother yourself, and as a soon-to-be working mother myself, which is why I enjoyed it so much, was this attention that was really important for you to portray? Yes, of course. And, you know, I have the feeling that uh, a lot of persons think that... Uh, uh, excuses women who go outside the home and leave their children when it, when it's for an economic reason. Okay, if you have to feed your children and to work to have money, okay, you can go out. But if you just express the fact that you don't want to stay home, mm. not only to 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 uh, have money and not only because of your job is uh, thanks to your job you can feed your children, but just because you don't feel comfortable when you're home and sometimes you're bored with your children and sometimes mm. you feel imprisoned in the, the, the family. And I wanted to show that, um, you know, the life at home is very difficult. It's very difficult every day and every day to take care of your children. It's very repetitive. Sometimes it's very boring. And no one is uh, saying you, thank you, thank you for having changed the baby and thank <laughs> you for making the baby. And no one mm. cares because mm. everyone thinks it's just normal that you're taking care of your children and also I have the feeling that um, I belong to a generation and you belong to the same generation obviously where uh, our parents told us you can have it all you yeah. can do everything you can be a mother or you cannot be a mother you can work you can have ambition but when you have it all you discover that it's not as simple as they told you and that they didn't give you the instruction it's full of anxiety and of stress and you always feel guilty when you're at work yeah. you're, you're feeling guilty of leaving your children when you are with your children you're feeling guilty of not working so it's very difficult to have it all David Mills writing in the Sunday Times culture called Miriam an unsympathetic character and I found that really interesting because to me he had totally missed the point. Why culturally do we judge 
Miriam, for example, in this case, for admitting that her much-loved children now bore her and that she missed work. It wouldn't be a crime, similarly, for a man to admit that Miriam's husband, Paul, doesn't earn a fortune in the music industry, and yet at no point is he forced to admit that he is bored by his children or that he is choosing to work. And in fact, at times, he finds Miriam struggle to balance her twin desires to be nurturing in the homestead and also to be at work quite frustrating. And he doesn't really encourage her to return to work, even though she had a promising career ahead as a lawyer. Yeah, you know, I think that this critic is very interesting. It's very <laughs> revealing of, mm. of something. Yes. Because we always judge the woman. We don't judge the, the husband. And um, I think, I don't think, uh, of course, that Miriam is unsympathetic. I think that Miriam is a woman who tries her best. She wants to be the best mother she can. She wants to be the best lawyer. And it's very difficult for, for her. And she wants also to be the best boss for Louise. She mm. tries her best to be nice to her and to be respectful. So I'm not judging my character at all and I don't think that when we read a novel we should judge the character. I think that literature is uh, a different space and yes. it's a time when we should put uh, our judgment on pause and try to look at human being in a different way and try to understand how it is hard to be just a human being. Yeah, we've talked about that before, about the importance in fiction to not hold people accountable to the same morals of sort of everyday reality. Because as you said, it's a space where you can, those thoughts can surface from sort of the recesses of the characters' minds that even with your closest friends, you probably wouldn't feel comfortable to say. Exactly. But if you can't do it through fiction, then where mm. can you do it? There, there was an interesting debate raging, for want of a better word, on social media from a programme called Kiri, where there is a social worker who is depicted as an alcoholic. Mm. And people were saying, oh, that well, everyone's going to think that social workers have, have drinking problems now. And the counter-argument to that is, well, if we can't explore this in fiction or on screen, where where are mm. we left with mm. at this and juncture? I also think that we should always think that the reader is clever. The reader yes. is not stupid. We can trust the reader when we are uh, a writer. I never write thinking, oh, he, he won't understand. I absolutely need to explain it to him. We, we must dare to sometimes not say things mm. or not explain. Mm -hmm. th just think that the reader is very clever and he can understand by himself. I found it particularly poignant because I was raised by nannies from the age of about six months onwards. Um, my mother had to go back to work. She's spoken of her kind of great guilt that weighed on her. She had to go back for work, first of all, for financial reasons. But as you said, you know, it's part of her identity. It's who she was. She loved work. Reading this book really did impress on me how torturous that decision is and how fraught and stress-inducing it must be to choose another person to trust with your child. Yes, you know, the first time, I remember the first time I left home and I closed the door and I was like, what did you do? You don't know this woman. Yeah. You don't know who she is. You just decided to trust her. But why do you, did you decide to trust her? And I left. I went to work and I was uh, texting the, the nanny each hour. Uh, is it okay? Is everything okay? How mm. is he? But, you know, you have to trust someone. And we never speak of the fact that when we speak about empowerment and about massification of work for women, 
women need other women to take care of their children and you know it's mm. like um, Russian dolls inside yes. a woman you have another woman and then another woman to take care of the children because at the end of the day you need your home to be clean and you need someone to to take the children at, at school so it's very important to in a certain way to uh, pay tribute to all those women those invisible women mm. who make it possible for us to have the life that we have mm. to work to have ambition to go out to at night and to go to cocktails and to make uh, links with other people so it's very important for me to say that the work of nannies it's, it's absolutely extraordinary what they are making possible for us women to work yeah i remember someone once saying that it annoyed them in that in an oscars speech a hollywood actress would always thank her husband and the director but she would <laughs> never thank the Childcare. Trilli- well, Angelina Jolie famously has a nanny for every child, which is oh seven. Oh, wow. Seven nannies. Yeah, wow. So, um, Are you going to do that? Yeah, I'm going to have seven for, for <laughs> one child. It's interesting to me what you said about the woman within a woman, the Russian, the Russian doll scenario. Do you always think it will stay largely a, a woman and a woman? Or do you think, I mean, you know, the rise of the manny, as it's been called, we do now have male domestic help, obviously, male nannies are still. A much rarer entity but do you ever think we will have that balance of um you know i'm not sure that it will happen very soon because you have to you have to see the fact that those women are coming from abroad um, they are essentially immigrants mm. they are coming from africa from asia and it's very um it's an economic organization that um, no one has really studied i've never read a book about the massification of women work and the fact that this massification has for consequence the massification of immigration of women Mm. because all those women are coming to take care of our children. And I think that in the Occidental world, maybe we don't trust, uh, we don't trust men immigrants as we trust women immigrants. It's not the same. uh, We don't look at them in the same way. Mm. Maybe it's a taboo to say this, but I'm sure that we are less afraid of Mm. a woman immigrant than we are afraid of a man immigrant. And Mm. the job of a nanny is not very valued. So it's a job that you don't pay a lot. It's a job of immigrants. And as uh, as long as it will be a job of immigrant, I think it will be a, a woman job. Another theme of the book that I found very interesting that you touched on at the beginning um, is how you explored class. You talked about the kind of ambiguous nature of the role of the nanny. Very cleverly, the story isn't told from one specific perspective. It's very fluid and it moves from one person's story very seamlessly to another, often within the same page or chapter. This means as the reader, you get to explore the sort of confusing contract of a nanny in the home in a really three-dimensional way. As you say, they're an employee, but they're also bedded into the kind of intimacy of a family. They're allowed into the fold almost as a sort of treat, but they can be cast out again as punishment. Acts of kindness from the parents, such as to come on holiday with the family or being given unwanted clothes, are suddenly seen through Louise's eyes as slightly thoughtless or patronising. Was that a tension that you wanted to explore? Yes, of course. And what was interesting for me is that Paul and Miriam, they are 
Så att nu är det här hipsters. De är väldigt cool. Det är en cool couple. De är nice people. De är inte racist. De är öppen-minded. De love kultur och environment. De äter quinoa. Och de är väldigt nice till sina barn. Så för mig var det väldigt intressant att titta på kontradiktionen av den hipster-couple. För de är väldigt nice. Men på samma tid, när de möter med någon som är väldigt annorlunda från dem. Som inte hör till den hipster-gruppen. De act in certain ways. Sometimes they are humiliate, Louise. Yes. Sometimes they are very condescendent. Can you say condescending? Condescending, condescending yes. Condescending to, to Louise. So for me, it was very interesting to explore this cultural class. Mm. You deal very interestingly with race in, well, in the book, but also in in the rest of your work as well. Like you, um, Miriam is of North African origin. You were born in Morocco. But she's vehemently against hiring a nanny who also speaks Arabic in case she asks for favours in the name of religion. And in the brilliant New Yorker profile that we cited earlier, you say, when someone invites me to go on TV to talk about the veil, should I just go because my name is Leila Slimani? Do you sometimes get bored of the expectation upon you to write about race as a woman of North African descent living in Paris and do you feel like you are expected to fill a certain role at times? Yes, of course, and that's why I've never written about uh, identity because I'm fed up of identity and I don't care <laughs> about identity. I just want to be who I want to be. I want to invent myself. Mm. I think I'm the only one to, um, to know who I am. My identity is a subjective. It's not objective. You can't say Leila Slimani is identity is Muslim or Moroccan. I, I don't care about this. I think it doesn't define me or it doesn't define a human being. And so in my novels, I try to have a sort of ironic tone when I speak about identity because I, I have the feeling that it's um, it's a lot caricatured and it's uh, full of cliché when we speak uh, of identity. So I wanted in a certain way to say, you know, you can be successful and you can be a boss when you're North African and you can hire a nanny. And you also know, maybe you can hire a nanny who is white. And in the working class, they are not all immigrants and black and from Maghreb. So for me, it was it was what I was telling you before, is that literature is here to make us um, aware and conscious mm -hmm. of the fact that reality is much more complex than we think sometimes. Such has been the response to your writing that Emmanuel Macron asked you to be the Minister for Culture, but you refused. Why was that? Because I want to be free. <laughs> Because I want to do whatever I want and I don't want someone to tell me, oh, you shouldn't do this or to say this or drink this because you're a minister. So <laughs> I want to drink and say and, and be whoever I want. Good, good call, I think. <laughs> the French politician Manuel Valls also paid tribute to you in your writing, listing you as part of the canon of the French language and sort of the great French writers. Do you find this flattering or I'm interested, do you find it a sort of cynical move on their part to garner favour by proxy of such a hugely successful author? Oh, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't know how to say in English, I'm not dupe. It means um, I know exactly no why, yeah, <laughs> I know exactly why he says this. And, you know, politicians, they have their own agenda. So um, I know why he tries, he decides to say my name. But at the same time, I'm flattered. Why not? He said Victor Hugo and Rabelais and Leila Slimani. Coming. My mother is very happy. <laughs> my sister are proud. So, okay, I'm, I'm happy with it. Yeah, take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. <laughs> Lullaby is your third book along with Don Le Jardin 
Delogrelog. Pardon my actual French, which is about a nymphomaniac. You have also written a whole book about Arabic women, sex and lies, about how women in the Middle East and North Africa live in sexual misery, forced to conform to the cultural fallacy that women do not feel sexual desire in the same way that men do and are not allowed to act on sexual desire. Both, annoyingly, are yet to be translated because <laughs> we're dying to read them. <laughs> are there any plans for those to be? Yes, they are going to be translated and they will um, now, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> By Faber and Faber. So I think that next year maybe you're going to read them, I hope. Well, Pandora emailed saying, please, your publisher, please can we find this in English? I think I would have sat doing it on Google Translate. That's how keen we were to read it. In Sex and Lies, you speak of many women who confront the myth that women are virgins until they marry, for instance. And the lies part of the title is, of course, that many women are sexually active before marriage, uh, having abortions even, but are forced to lie about it because male sexuality is primordial, but a woman's is to be buried and is therefore non-existent. There seems to me that there is a theme that binds your three books together and perhaps more of your work as it is to come, and that is the unspoken truths about womanhood, things that are seen as shameful or revolting or unfeminine. What's that your intention when you set out as a novelist to write about such things, to lay them bare in this very revealing and unapologetic way? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the the worst weapons of a patriarchy was silence and shame mm. and telling women you should not speak because it's a shame what you are going to say. You should not say what you feel. You should not say what happened to you. You just have to keep this. And it's a very good way to isolate women from each other so mm. they can't be together and and fight for their rights. So I think that breaking the silence, trying to express the secrets inside the woman's soul is very, very important. It's so way to to fight for the right of women for privacy for intimacy for secret you know for example in in morocco the woman i i was um, speaking with they all told me i'm never alone i don't have the right to to have my own room i'm always there is always someone looking at me or judging me or telling me what to do. I have to be married because in Morocco, you don't have the right to have sexual relationship when you're not married. You can go to prison. So it's very and um, it's very hard for a woman to have just a, a moment for her. And I'm fighting for this, for the right of to have a secret. Mm. Mm. Is it a contradiction that's very much known within Morocco that women are having sexual relationships before marriage. Is that something that would be... Yes, that's why the, the, the word lies was very important for me because it's a, just a hypocrisy. Mm. Men are doing as if, but they know because they are having sex with those women. So they know. Yeah, they, but yeah. at the end, it's they just say, okay, I had sex with you, but I won't marry you. So the woman is like, okay, Okay, so now I lost my virginity and I can't marry because no one is going to marry her because she lost her virginity. So the woman is always the loser in this uh, Mm -hmm. story. And it's like the man, you know, he has the menu and he can choose whatever he wants. But the, the woman, she doesn't have she doesn't really have the choice. Dare we ask what is next for you after the round of promoting Lullaby? You know, I'm going to write my next novel, I, I hope, maybe this summer. So not much time off. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying before we started recording, you said that in France this has that it's been optioned for film. Yes, <gasps> it's uh, Mai Wen. She's a very famous um, director. She's a woman, and she won uh, prizes in Cannes. She won the Prix du Jury in Cannes for a movie called Police, and she's a very talented director. So I'm very happy. That's her. 
That's not a surprise, as I was saying, as you read it, it reads so cinematically, kind of every page. Yes. I just hope it has subtitles. Yes, of course, <laughs> of course. Leila, thank you so much for joining thank us you. on the High Low today. We adored, if still slightly reeling, from your very brilliant book, and we look forward to reading more from you in the future. Thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs> thank you, Leila. Thank you so much for listening to The Hilo and to everyone who has rated, reviewed, subscribed. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Thank you to Wardour Studios for having us. Bye. Bye-bye. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.